We continue our sermon series in 1 Timothy. We'll be in chapter 5, verses 1 to 16. Uh, scripture will be printed on the screen behind me if you don't have a Bible. Also in our church app, you'll find a sermon listening guide, and there the Scripture is printed as well uh, if you want to follow along there. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 1 through 16. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, in all purity. Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God." She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband, and having a reputation for good works, if she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. But refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry, and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. Consider these four distorted images of the church. The church as a gas station, which means that you basically come to church on empty to get your tank filled up for the week, hear a good sermon so you can make it another week. Church as gas station. Or the church as a movie theater, place of entertainment, place where you would come to check your problems at the door, kind of escape, hear some good news, and hopefully walk out happier than you walked in church's movie theater, or the church as a drugstore, place where you come to basically fill the prescription for your pain. This would be more of a therapeutic view of church. Or church as a big box retailer, offers the best products in a clean, safe environment with all the programs for your children. Now, these are distorted images of the church, but these are also very common images of the church in our day. The dominant image that Timothy, or that Paul lays out to Timothy in this letter of the church, 
the dominant image is family. We've seen that. Paul has called the church the household of God, and that image of family only intensifies in this chapter five. That the church is the family of God. What does that mean? What does it mean that the church is the family of God? How does the church live and breathe as the family of God? First, the church relates well as the family of God. The church relates well as the family of God. Paul begins this chapter by instructing Timothy uh, how to rebuke certain people in the church because there were issues that needed to be addressed. Verses one to two. He says, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. There was a need for rebuke in this church. When Paul says don't rebuke, he, he's calling Timothy to rebuke, but he's explaining how it should be done. This was a church that had a number of issues. We've seen them so far. There were elders that were sinning against their consciences, shipwrecking their faith. We learn in the second letter that Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3 that there were women who were astraying away from Christ, being drawn away by certain passions that were then turning into false teachings that they were spreading throughout the church. We've seen that God's design for the church or his order has been turned upside down. And we see here in this passage that even the ministry to widows had issues that needed to be addressed. And so this was a church that had a number of issues. And before Paul lays out the what of the issue with widows, he's going to address Timothy in how. How to address. Not just the what, but the how. Now, before I answer the question on how, let me state the obvious that oftentimes gets overlooked. We read letters like this. We hear all that was going on in this first century church and we go, wow, that was a dysfunctional church. Or you read Paul's letter to the Corinthian church and you read it and you go, my goodness, that was a dysfunctional church. I'm so glad that we're not dysfunctional. I'm so glad we don't have elders sinning against their consciences and shipwrecking their faith. I'm so glad we don't have women that are being drawn away to these crazy passions and spreading false teaching in the church. I'm so glad we have no problems with design of the church Wow, so thankful we're not a dysfunctional church. You know that's what we do personally, right? We see someone fall into sin, and maybe outwardly we don't say it, but inwardly we think, wow, so glad I'm not doing that or like that. That person is really dysfunctional. So glad I'm not dysfunctional. Right? It's the plague of self-righteousness. There is no perfect church which is the family of God. There's no perfect family of God. There's no perfect nuclear family. And all of you would nod and say, correct. There is no perfect family, whether it's the immediate family or the family of God, the church. There are always issues because we live in a broken world. And so Paul's gonna instruct Timothy, he's gonna get to the what, like what's the problem? But before he ever gets to the what, 
He's gonna instruct Timothy on the how. How do you rebuke? How do you confront? How do you correct when correction needs to be made? When you confront someone, what you say is important. How you say it is really important. So what are Paul's instructions on the how? He addresses four kinds of relationships here in the first two verses that cover kind of the generational breadth. First, he says, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. So if there's need for rebuke to an older man, he says to Timothy, you don't do that from a position of superiority, even though Timothy was the pastor of this church. He said, you do it with the same humility and trepidation that you would have if you had to rebuke your own father, right? Think of that. If you had to address something with your father, the, the humility, the trepidation, that's how you would address older men, right? that kind of posture. Second, younger men as brothers. Paul says, Timothy, when you're, t- when you're addressing, confronting, rebuking younger men, you do it as they're your brother, as equals. You don't lord your superiority over them. You don't lord control over them. You treat them as equals, as a brother. Third, older women as mothers. If there comes a need for rebuke to an older woman, Paul says, Timothy, you do it with the same tenderness and the same sensitivity and the same humility that you would address your own mother with. In fact, Paul talks about this relationship of older women or mothers in the church in Romans 16, 13. He says, greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Older women are such a source of encouragement for the church. They act as mothers for the church. In fact, one of our pastors at our uh, Christ Church in town, our sister congregation, Willie, from his previous tradition that he came from, they had church mothers. And as we see, they were widows, older widows, but they were church mothers. Paul says, if you need to rebuke an older woman, you do it as you would to your own mother, that kind of tenderness. And then fourth, younger women as sisters in all purity. Any exhortation or any rebuke that goes to a younger woman needs to be done in the spirit of protection. It says, Timothy, the same way that you would speak to your, a younger sister and the protectiveness you would have over your younger sister, that's the way I want you, if you have to rebuke a younger woman, that's how I need you to do it. Now, let's unpack the key to this kind of relating in the body of Christ in the church. We've just named four kinds of relationships, but there's really one key that ties all of this relating together, and it comes out of verse one. Paul says, do not rebuke, but encourage. Encourage. The word for encourage in the Greek is parakaleo. It's a compound word. Para means beside. Kaleo means to call. To encourage means to call alongside, 
to call to one's aid. The noun form of parakaleo is parakletos, and it's the word used to describe the Holy Spirit in John 14. John 14, 16, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. That's parakletos, to be with you forever. John 14, 26, but the helper, parakletos, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. The Holy Spirit rebukes you and convicts you. That's the job of the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit does that to help you, to help conform you to the image of Christ. And so that's to be the motivation we have when we rebuke or confront or exhort someone else. When you exhort or rebuke or confront someone in your immediate family or in the broader family of God, the church, what is your motivation for doing so? Is it to help that person? or is it to vindicate yourself, to prove that you're right? If your motivation for confronting someone, rebuking, exhorting someone is to vindicate yourself or to vindicate an organization that you support, if it's vindication, you are going to rebuke or confront with anger and abrasiveness, not tenderness and sensitivity. And your motivation is not going to be to help that person. Your motivation is actually to help yourself. It's to prove yourself right. It's to vindicate yourself. The church is the family of God that relates well. That when there's a need for rebuke, it's done in the spirit of encouragement. Parakaleo, to call alongside, to help, to aid. Now, this is an exhortation from Paul that's certainly needed Everyone needs this. But this is specifically and especially important for those of you that have a, a driver type of personality. And by that I mean that you're gifted. You're gifted to get things done and get them done efficiently. You're gifted to, to clean up a mess and make it right. But every gift has a weakness you can get something done and get it done efficiently. You can clean up a mess and make it right and leave a bunch of bodies in a ditch. It's the bull in the china shop. That's not how we're called to rebuke or to correct or to exhort. We're called to rebuke in a spirit of encouragement, which means what you say and what you do is important, yes, but how you say it and how you do it is really important. The message matters. The tone of the message really matters. There's a sensitivity. There's a humility. And that is to characterize the family of God, the church. The church is the family of God that relates well. Second, 
The church lives as the family of God by relating well, but second, the church lives as the family of God by caring well, by caring well. Verse three, honor widows who are truly widows. Now, throughout the scriptures, there is extraordinary honor and extraordinary care given to widows. It starts in the Ten Commandments with the Fifth Commandment, honor your father and mother. But shortly after the Ten Commandments, we read in Exodus 22, you shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry. Deuteronomy 10, 18. He, God, executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Jesus, the expression of God the Father in the flesh, makes this abundantly clear in Mark chapter seven. When he scolds the Pharisees, he scolds the teachers of the law for dodging their responsibility to care for their mothers and fathers by using this exemption that was called Corbin. Basically, they had made up a spiritual loophole to get them off the hook for caring for widows. And Jesus scolded them for it. His teaching ministry is full of care for widows and it culminates on the cross. There's that poignant moment when Jesus is hanging on the cross in John chapter 19, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Jesus cared for his own widowed mother until his dying breath. And then the early church picked up the heart of Jesus. We see in Acts chapter six, when the apostles appointed seven people to care for and to distribute the food to the Greek widows. We see James in James 1.27, right? Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. God loves the widow, loves the orphan, loves the sojourner or alien. Question becomes, how is this care to widows to be delivered? If God cares so much for widows, how, how is the care delivered? Verse four, but if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. The first line of protection for widows is the immediate family. And we'll get to if there is no family to take care of where the church steps in, but the immediate line of protection is the family. The word here that gets translated uh, to show uh, godliness to is a word that means to fulfill one's duties. 
It refers to a sense of awesome obligation arising within a system of reciprocity in which special respect is showed to those who have had the greatest investment in one's well-being, such as deities and parental figures. In fact, the only other place in the New Testament that this word, to show godliness to, is used is when Paul is addressing the unknown God of the Athenians, of the people of Athens, that they worship, the word there, to show godliness to. They believe that their God deserved their highest devotion. Paul uses that word here to describe the awesome obligation that children have to care for aging parents and widowed parents. It's an awesome obligation. And when it happens and when it's done, it is pleasing in the sight of God. It pleases him. Pastor Brian Chapel says it this way, it's beautiful. We who once held our helpless children in our arms and nursed them and provided for their every need will one day be held in their arms as they nurse us at the end of our lives. That's the care for widows from the immediate family. Then Paul goes on to say, well, what if there's not? What if a widow doesn't have that kind of support? What's the church's role in caring for a widow? Well, if, if the widow was destitute, then the church stepped in to provide care. And by destitute, meaning maybe there are no children or grandchildren left to care for the widow. Or maybe they are, but they've abandoned the widow. Or maybe the financial resources are gone and exhausted. The, the customary uh, dowry wasn't there. You know, in ancient times, when a woman entered into marriage, she oftentimes brought in a dowry. And that was a large sum of money. The primary purpose of the dowry was if her husband died, there was financial resources to care for this widow. But if there were no financial resources and there was no children, no family, and that would qualify a woman to be, or a widow to be cared for by the church. But there weren't just financial qualifications, there were also spiritual ones. Verses five to six. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplication and prayers night and day. But, but she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. That word self-indulgent means to live for pleasure. It could mean, it could refer to sexual pleasure. It could refer to material excess or kind of material Prosperity, pleasure, could refer to sex as a means to material prosperity. There's a lot of ways it could be unpacked what that means that this person is self-indulgent. But it could have been that the, this widow was using her dowry instead of to care for her needs. She was squandering it on pleasure. Or the church was supporting this widow and she was taking the church's support and using it on pleasure, living for pleasure, self-indulgent luxury while there are other widows who really needed the care. You say, well, isn't mercy and grace, mercy and grace, it's undeserved, right? Nobody deserves mercy. 
and grace. That mercy and grace are undeserved, yes. But there are times, and this is, I believe, what was happening in this Ephesian church, where mercy and grace delivered can enable. And those times where mercy and, and grace are enabling, the most gracious kind thing to do is to withdraw support. To not enable, but to withdraw support in hopes of restoration and pulling someone back in. And so mercy and grace is to be delivered to the widow. And that's what the call is on the church. The church lives out its calling as a family of God by caring well. Caring well for people, specifically widows. There's a really strong warning that Paul gives here in verse eight. Very strong warning, very humble warning. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. This verse applies to the immediate family, but it also applies to the broader family of God. What it means is that the truth that we teach, the truth that we submit to in God's word must be embodied. It must be embodied in care. If God loves the widow, orphan, and alien, which is just widow, the person without a spouse, Orphan, the person without parents. Alien, the person without a home. If God cares for the person without a spouse, the person without parents, and the person without a home, then the church must also. Because the church is an expression, albeit imperfect, but the church is an expression of God's heart for his world. So let me pose a list of questions for you to ponder a series of questions that relate to this. Are you caring for your aging parents well? Especially if one has died, leaving the other widowed. Is there a widow in your sphere of influence? Maybe your neighborhood, maybe your workplace that has need. Let me just broaden the category of widow into modern American culture because there is a, there's a certain woman in modern American culture that was virtually unknown in the first century. And that is, that's a godly Christian woman with children who has been abandoned by a spouse and functionally left without family or maybe even resources. But even beyond widow, to go to the trio of who God expresses over and over in the scriptures, Old Testament and new, and new, beyond the widow, is there an orphan that needs parents through foster care or adoption? Is there an alien that needs your help? seen it in my own neighborhood, there are a lot of Ukrainian refugees that are arriving in Jacksonville because of the war. In fact, the one couple with a young daughter that arrived in our neighborhood, broken English, but I was finally able to understand, they, they finally left 
when a bomb dropped on the shopping mall in their city killing civilians. They said, that's it, we can't stay. Now they came here because they have family. So there's family to come around this alien. Is there a refugee, is an alien that needs your help? Now, I ask these questions not to say that you should go out and help every widow, orphan, and alien, nor that the church should. You're a finite being with finite resources. We're a finite, we're a church with finite resources. But I am asking you to pray, to ask God. Ask God to reveal to you a widow, an orphan, or an alien that he might be calling you to care for. Because that's what the family of God does. The church is the family of God that relates well, that cares well. And finally, the church serves well as the family of God. The church serves well. When you read verses nine to 15 in this passage, these further qualifications, by the time you get done reading them, you go, is there any widow that would ever qualify for assistance in the church at Ephesus? Because the, the, the qualifications just start ramping up and up and up, and you realize there's many godly widows that would be rejected based on these. Most likely, what we're reading in 9 through 15 are qualifications for widows that would serve in the ministry of the church. These are uh, qualifications for ministry, so to speak, of a widow who would serve. I spoke to you about our brother at Christ Church in town, the tradition he came from. They would have church mothers. And I understand that's probably something like this. Uh, they were widows, older widows that would serve the church, that would minister in various ways to the church. That's what's going on here in 9 through 15. All right, so verse 9, not less than 60 years of age. 60 was culturally recognized as the age of retirement. It was also an age at which typically it was unlikely for people to remarry. And so it was an ideal age or older than that where, where a woman could focus on singleness and ministry, had the opportunity to serve in that way in the church. Verse 9, having been the wife of one husband, very similar to what we read in the elder deacon qualification. That doesn't mean that a woman is precluded who has remarried from a biblical divorce. No, it just means a one-man woman, right? a woman who's been, who was faithful in her marriage to her husband. Verse 10, having a reputation for good works, raised children, shown hospitality, washed the feet of saints, cared for the afflicted, devoted herself to every good work. Now the question becomes, why does Paul seem to exclude younger women, right? Why the, the age of 60 as kind of the cutoff for serving in ministry in this church? Verses 11 to 12, but refuse to enroll younger widows for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. You say, what's going on here? What does it mean they're, they're abandoning their former faith? Well, apparently, 
that one of the qualifications for getting on this list to serve in the ministry of the church uh, was that they took a vow not to marry. So what Paul's saying is, for these younger widows, if they take a vow not to marry, they're gonna be tempted to marry. And if they marry, they're gonna have to go back on their vow. So, so Paul says, for that reason, I, I encourage younger widows to, to remarry. And if they're being supported by the church, there's gonna be a temptation towards idleness. That's what verse 13 gets at. And you can see some of the things that were going on in this church. Besides that, they learned to be idlers, going about from house to house, not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies. The word gossips here means uh, foolishness or nonsense when compared to the truth. So this is a church where there's a bunch of false teaching going around. The elders had been doing it, and now we read that potentially there were these women that were drawn away by passions, and they were beginning to spread false teaching around the church. So Paul says in verse 14, I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. Why? Because these younger widows remarrying would learn to, to serve, to serve their family, to serve their household, instead of engaging in self-indulgence. Now, what ties these two together in 9 to 15? Paul's talking about these older widows, 60, ages, 60 years and older, these younger widows. The call to both of them is to serve. Paul's calling these older widows to serve in a more formal capacity in the church, to do ministry. That's why there are these qualifications. He's calling the younger widows to serve in the family, right? They're both called to serve in the family. The older widows, the broader family of God, the younger widows in, in their immediate families and beyond to the broader family of God. But the call here is to serve and not to be idle because idleness never, never produces any kind of fruit. We're called to serve. We're designed to serve. Healing, healing comes through serving. Right? The church is to be a family that serves well because we have been served well, and that's the key. Jesus Christ has served us well. He served us well on the cross when he died for us. He served us well when he rose from the dead, and he serves us well presently at the right hand of God interceding for us. So we are served so well by Jesus. The call is as we receive that mercy and grace that we're called to then turn around and serve others and deliver it to others. The church lives as the family of God by serving well. This is actually one of the statements in our, our values as a church. The church is not a passive crowd of consumers, but an active body of servants. It's not a, a passive crowd of consumers, but an active body of of servants. They ran this study with 132 multiple sclerosis patients, MS patients. And what they did in the study is they broke out the MS patients into two groups. One group met weekly to learn coping skills with their suffering. The other group met monthly with other MS sufferers who were trained to give support. 
And what they wanted to find out is which group fared better. Did they fare better with coping skills or did they fare better with uh, an MS sufferer giving them support? And what they found was surprising. Neither of those groups fared as well as the five MS sufferers that were trained to give the support to others who were suffering. And they reached this conclusion, which is not surprising when we understand the gospel. Giving support improved health more than receiving it. That giving support improved health more than receiving it. And these MS patients that were giving support, their, their self-esteem, their confidence, the, the depression started to wane. They just started to come, come alive. And again, that's not surprising because we are made to serve. And let me just say this. The church is not a group of people that don't struggle and don't suffer. And a people, uh, a people that struggle and suffer with one direction of mercy and care. So the people that don't struggle and don't suffer, right, give mercy and care to those that suffer and struggle. No, that's not what the church is. The church is a family of strugglers and sufferers. Everyone struggles and suffers, and together we receive the mercy of Jesus that brings healing. But that healing takes full effect when we turn around having received it and then begin to give it. I had one of my mentors, he always said it, you never heal until you get back in the saddle. Right, you get thrown off the horse, you get you hurt, you suffer, you never heal until you get back in the saddle. Right, that healing comes through serving. Let me say it this way. The widow needs you and you need the widow. The orphan needs you, and you need the orphan. The alien, the refugee, needs you, and you need the alien. Because the church is the family of God that relates well, that cares well, that serves well. Let's pray. Oh, Father, the mercy of your Son is nothing short of extravagant. From the very lips of Jesus, we hear that he came not to be served, but to serve. And we are the recipients of the mercy of your son. We have been healed by your son, Jesus, and we will be healed fully. We have been cared for well by your son, Jesus, and we will be cared for well. Oh, Father, would you make us a church that relates well, that cares well, that serves well, that we would be the family of God, not free from issues. This side of glory, we will always have issues just as we have issues in our own families. Would we not be shocked by that? But Father, would you help us to relate well, 
when we have to rebuke or exhort or confront, would we do it in humility and with sensitivity and with tenderness, with the goal of encouraging and helping the person we are correcting? And Father, as a church, would you give us a heart for the widow, the orphan, and the alien? Because they hold a special place in your heart. And we want the church to be an expression of your heart. Albeit imperfect, Father, we know that. But Father, would you reveal to us the ways in which we may be called to care for the widow, the orphan, or the alien? And Father, would you make us a, a, a body of servants, eager to serve one another, all for your glory, and so that the world would see a beautiful, not perfect, but a beautiful picture of the church. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.